How great is our band, huh? The band blesses us every Sunday. I'm so thankful for them. I'm thankful for the tech team and the children's ministry and the cafe and everybody who helps us on Sunday. Thank you for your ministry to Wyoming Valley Church. So our plan, we had planned last week to get back into Ephesians and circumstances beyond our control, of course. We, uh, we weren't able to do that. And then my dad, Pastor Mel, has been planning to preach the beginning of chapter 6. Now he's out of town. And I had to come up with a lesson to sort of buy us some time till we get back into Ephesians. So I'm incredibly clever. I just want you guys to know that. And I thought about what could I title the lesson today? And that's what I came up with, having 2020 vision. Come on, give it to me. Give it to me. Boo. Someone just boo? Come on, that's incredibly clever, right? I should trademark it because I'm sure no one's thought of that yet. In fact, it's, it's so cheesy, I can't actually call that our, our lesson today. So that was just a joke slide. We're not calling it Happy 2020 Vision, but uh, you can tell how clever I am. But actually, the title of the lesson today is going to be called Looking Through the Lens of God's Glory. And we're going to take, again, another week off from Ephesians. We will get back into Ephesians because chapter 6 of Ephesians is awesome. And we're going to get there and take our time with that. But Pastor Mel will, Lord willing, start that for us next Sunday. But I, I want to talk about this topic today because I had a decision to make. What would be best to speak about at the beginning of a new year? What's a good New Year's sermon? So I honestly sat down and thought and prayed, what is the most important thing I could think to speak about? The most important thing. And a lot of things were racing through my mind, and you know, I came up with the 2020 vision thing going, oh, can I pull that off? Um, and then I actually had this thought going, well, there's something that sort of is the most important thing in Scripture. It really is. The more you look into Scripture, the more you see this kind of comes up everywhere. And it's this idea of God's glory. In fact, we just sang about it, and that, was, that wasn't even planned. The songs were just picked so well this morning. So we're going to look at a couple passages today. We don't really have one main text. I guess if we have a main text, it comes from Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 to 11. I believe at least a couple of those are on your sheet there, on your bulletin. I'm not sure if the first one is, but we'll get to the lesson here in a minute. Did you ever see something incorrectly? Did you ever see something incorrectly? There's a lot of instances where we see things incorrectly. Uh, darkness makes us see things improperly, of course. In fact, that's my first illustration this morning. When you're a kid, there's something unique that happens when you're a child. And maybe it happens later in your life, but it definitely happens when you're a child. Your bedroom is one of the best places in the entire world, right? It has all your toys. It's where your bed is. It's one of the most comfortable places. But something happens when the lights go out. When the lights go out and you're a kid and, and you're in your own bedroom, something transforms into truly a terrifying situation. If you remember that when you were a child or you have children now and you're kind of dealing with that, is the things in your closet, right? And the lights go out and suddenly your, your bedroom is a terrifying place. You're seeing things that don't really exist in the closet. I remember that as a child, having the lights go out and having my mom come back in to search out my closet. I don't know why it was always my mom and not my dad. My dad could scare away the boogeyman a lot more, but... I'd have my mom come in and say, Mom, I'm terrified. There's, there's a monster in my closet. I can see his hook hand. <laughs> hook hand. So she had to come in and turn the lights out. And she goes, Todd, it's not a monster. It's just, you know, it's just your closet, how it looks in the dark. It's just a hanger with something, you know, a shirt hanging off. And I said, no, it's a monster. As soon as you turn the lights out, it's going to come back and get me. And so, you know, they invented night lights for this very reason. So you can cast a little bit of light into the closet. And that actually sometimes makes it worse. Because then you can see a little bit more, but not enough. But for whatever reason, your imagination just runs wild. 
and you can't see clearly. So what you're imagining isn't really there. But for a child, it's terrifying. But there is an adult equivalent of this, equivalency of this. And I've mentioned it here before. But we sort of have an equivalency of this as adults. Google. Google. I've said this before, but if you ever have a pain or a sensation and you take it to Dr. Google, like I've done before, and I, I don't know why I do this, but don't do this. And I type in something like pain in middle toe. And it comes up with like 20 of the most terrifying diseases you can ever imagine. Uh, mid-toe, mid-tophilus. It's like, no, no, mid-tophilus. I have mid-tophilus. I'm going to die in the next hour. And that's kind of the adult version of seeing something scary in your closet because most often, 99 out of 100 times, you don't have anything close to that. It's just something that needs to resolve on its own. But you type in your symptoms. You don't really want to go to the doctor and tell them your middle toe hurts. So you go to Google, and Google's a lot more forgiving, of course, and they tell you exactly how you're going to die that day. And I've done this before. In fact, I've, I've shared this before as well, but when I was, uh, we were set to have the twins, it was uh, just about six years ago, and I remember just that being a very stressful time, and I went outside to take a bag of garbage outside, and I came in and had this like pain in my chest. And I remember thinking, well, that's odd. I don't remember feeling that before. So as any imbecile would do, you go to Google and type in chest pain, you know, thinking yeah, something will help me <laughs> by typing in chest pain. And I remember just being terrified by what came up when I typed in chest pain going, oh, man, you're about, you're about at the end. You're, your heart is bad. You're going to die of a heart attack. If you have tingling in your arm or numbness down your leg, and suddenly I started feeling it. I was like, oh, no, I think I feel it. Yeah, tingling in my arm. I have that, too. And I started really getting concerned that something was bad with my heart. Instead of going to a doctor where the doctor could run you know, some tests and see if they actually anything was wrong, I let Google decide. And that's the adult version of, of not seeing clearly, that there's scary monsters in your closet. We're going to talk about having 20-20 vision, but we're going to call it looking through the lens of God's glory because there is a proper way to see everything in this world. And there's an improper way to see everything in this world. I want to take you to a couple passages. The first one I want to read is Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. It's going to be on the screen. This is just a really amazing passage I've thought about a lot. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The passage teaches us that God's glory is all over this earth if we will simply look for it. We will find it clearly. We will find it in the night sky. We will find it in the day sky. We will find it in creation. God's glory is all over this world. That passage I had Paul read where Isaiah gets a vision and he goes up to the throne room of God and it says the whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole train of his robe filled the temple. God's glory is everywhere. And it's the way that we see things properly. And if we miss it, it's the way we see things improperly. I want to read a passage from Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. This is going to be on the screen, but you can turn there if you want to. And I just want you to listen to the language of this passage. In verse 9, it says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's glory is all over the scripture. God's glory is all over this world. We want to talk about 
seen through the lens of God's glory because it makes a difference with how we see everything else. See, we've arrived at a new year. It's 2020. And it has some of us thinking about New Year's resolutions. Does anybody do that? Anybody do New Year's resolutions? Anybody tried that in the past? They don't usually last real long. If you look it up, it looks like those things last about a week before people give up on New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you've ever tried New Year's resolutions, but I want you to guess what might be the top five New Year's resolutions. What is it? Losing weight, getting fit is number one. By a lot, actually. Losing weight and getting fit. Oh, that just broke. Losing weight and getting fit. What's another one? New Year's resolution. What is it? Save money. That's number two. To be my more financially secure and stable, there's another New Year's resolution. Anyone? Any other guesses? What is it? Read more. Read more? Oh, I didn't see that one. Read more. I guess people don't like to read anymore. But no, here's another one. To shake off that addiction or that bad habit from 2019. That's a New Year's resolution. Whatever that thing is that you do too much, you want to resolve yourself to shake that off. Uh, to be better workers, to strive for that promotion. People have that as a New Year's resolution. I want to go higher in my job, greater in my job. Here's another one, more generalized. To live happier and to be more at peace. To live happier and to be more at peace. Those are some New Year's resolutions people are thinking about today. I don't know if you have any New Year's resolutions, but I heard from a lot of people that 2019 was an exceptionally difficult year, full of hardships. Anyone else say yes to that? That 2019 was a hard year. It was full of hardships, full of difficulties. And there were a lot of us that were just hoping to get through 2019 and get to 2020. Turn the calendar page, get over with 2019, and just let it be in the rearview mirror. But 2019 also had good memories, has good memories, has hard memories. We had, a couple, we had a couple hard memories recently for this church, and that's something that will stay with us. But when you turn the calendar page, you're hoping that everything becomes better, right? You're all hopeful that once you turn the calendar page, good things are on the horizon, and since I'm a pastor doing a New Year's sermon, what am I supposed to say? This is, a, this is what I'm supposed to say as a pastor, that 2020 is going to be your best year yet. The Lord's going to multiply your blessings. The hardships from 2019 will be shaken off sooner rather than later. That's what I'm supposed to say as a pastor. That's what I'm supposed to say in a 2020 New Year's sermon. But I have a lesson today for us that might be a little challenging, but it's really important. And it honestly is really helpful. The more I wrestled with this, the more I thought through this and prayed about this and searched through it, it helped me. It helped me tremendously. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that it will help you too because we need a proper perspective going into 2020. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because honestly, I don't know. 2020 could be full of hardships like 2019 was, or it could be full of earthly blessings. Most likely, it's going to have both, isn't it? Like every year of our life, like every week of our life, we have some hard things. And we have things that are blessings. But 2020 is another calendar year on the earth. That's what it is. It's a period of time. And we know scripturally the earth is going to go away eventually. So 2020 could be the best year of your life. It could be the hardest year of your life. But I'm going to say this today. Honestly, it doesn't matter that much. It doesn't matter if 2020 is the best year of your life on earth or the hardest year of your life on earth. And we're going to arrive at that conclusion today by what we look at. Because our concept of time here on the earth is going to change one day. It's going to change. When we get to the other side, we're going to have a different concept of time. We're going to have God's concept of time. It says in the scripture that to God, a thousand years is as one day to him. 
A thousand years is as one day. So picture yesterday. That was nothing to God. Picture the last a thousand years or two thousand years of this world. That's like two days to God. That's God's concept of time. God's concept of time is different than ours. And the honest truth is that what we do in 2020, has there's two options for it. It's either going to burn away because we use it for careless, useless things, or it's going to live on into eternity because we use it for God. We use it for God's will. See, we find a unique perspective in Scripture that's supposed to help us with every single aspect of our lives. And if we have this perspective, we can endure anything. And I mean that, anything. If we have this one perspective. It's the perspective that allowed Moses to endure 40 years of wandering with really difficult, really annoying, really faithless people. It's the perspective which allowed Joseph to be mistreated for years, to be sold into slavery from his brothers. It's the perspective that helped Daniel face a lion's den. It's the same perspective that helped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look into a fiery furnace and stand confidently. It's the perspective that has helped countless saints face persecution, even martyrdom. It's a perspective we all need. The perspective that we all need this new year is that it's all about God's name and glory. Everything. Everything on this earth, everything in heaven is about God's name and glory. All of scripture speaks to this one overarching truth. That everything that is good or hard in our lives is given to us for the magnifying of our great God. That's the purpose of life. Scholars have been trying to figure out what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? And God's scripture tells us exactly why. You are here for God's name's sake. You're here for his glory. That's why you exist. That's why you have another calendar year. That's why you have another day. That's why you woke up today. For God's glory. That is a unique perspective. That's a perspective that we all need. See, unfortunately, we have it backwards. The devil has been spending many years and generations telling us and training us to think that God exists for us. That God is our servant. That God may be our butler. That God is our help to accomplish our will, right? A lot of people have that perspective about God, that that's why God exists. God exists to give me what I want, to help me do what I want. And I might touch a nerve here, but that's why a lot of people have their life passage from a verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. Because Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Can you see why a lot of us love that passage, love that verse? It tells us that God is going to bless us, give us a hope, give us a future, keep us from harm. And it's a wonderful verse. But do you know what that verse, do you know what the context of that verse is? It's given to the Israelites who are in a Babylonian exile. They're going through a really difficult time. They're in slavery, and God knew they needed a timely passage, a timely promise to get them through that. But unfortunately, some of us take that and, and start to think that, well, this works with the American dream. God is here to bless me and give me everything I want. He's here to give me a, a hope and a future. And that's not really what the verse was intended to do. God does have promises. God does give blessings to each of us. But we're never supposed to take what God gives us and use it to change our perspective and think that it's all about us. Because God does not exist for us, does he? He exists for something higher. And that's the journey we're going to take today, is trying to figure out why does God do what he does? 
even towards us? Why does he do what he does? See, if our perspective is wrong about this, then it's no wonder that our days and our years seem so hard. And I want to help us all today. I don't want 2020 to have the same perspective that we did in 2019, where hard things define us. Difficulties and hardships are what define us. And if God exists to bless me, then when I face hardships and sickness and financial stress, when we lose our job, when we have people speak mean about us, we start to consider that maybe God is slacking on his duties. I mean, he promised to give me a hope and a future and to keep me from harm. What is your deal, God? Why so many hardships in 2019? Why was 2019 so difficult? But God is not here for our sake. God is here for his sake. And that's something we need to understand today. That's a scriptural view of God, that God exists for his own glory. When we calibrate our perspective to scripture, we see that this life on earth is used and given for the glory of God. It's not about achieving the American dream or being blessed or rich or successful or even healthy on the earth. It's about glorifying our great God. That's why Wyoming Valley Church exists. That's why we exist individually. And that's why we exist corporately. But the problem is, is we're trying to take Christianity and the American dream and squish them together to make one unique, awesome life and future. So we have the American dream now. We squish it together with Christianity. And we have a unique hope waiting for us. And it's the best of both worlds. But when you read the Bible, and I'm reading through the Bible again because it's been a couple years, I'm noticing that I don't really find a lot of the American dream in it. I just don't. It's not really in Scripture. Uh, it's not that you can't make it work if you're trying to. You probably can. But when you're reading the Scriptures just purely, you're coming across a lot of that. God's glory. God's glory. See, if God is all about us, then it honestly should be a prosperous 2020. We should be rich. We should be comfortable. We should be prosperous. But if God is about something greater than us, then we are his tools created and redeemed for his purpose. And that is the perspective we need. And I know you're probably sitting there not quite inspired yet because that's probably not the message you want to hear in 2020 is that God is here for his own glory. But this is the perspective we need and it's going to help us if we will pay attention today. I want to read another passage of scripture coming from the, uh, the perspective of God with the Israelites. If you remember the Israelites, the Israelites were God's people, but the Israelites kind of had this pattern going. They would love God, they would thank God, they would forget God, they would live in sin, they would rebel against his commandments, and God would have to chide them and discipline them and show them his will again, and then they'd have to repent and get back with God. And that kind of just happens over and over and over every generation. So God just kind of has to, when you're reading a lot of the Old Testament, he's just kind of reminding them a lot about who he is, about who they are, about why they're there. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you have your Bibles, flip over there. I think we have a portion of it on the screen, but Ezekiel 36, I want to read a passage starting in verse 22 and going down to, let's see, verse 32. So it's about 11 verses long. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. And just listen to what the God, what the God of Israel, the God of the universe, says to the Israelites. It says, therefore, in verse 22, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show you the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call you for the grain and make it plentiful, and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees of the crops of the field, so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices." I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. We learn something there, don't we? We learn something that God does bless his people. God loves to bless his people. However, it's not because we're so irresistibly lovable. That's not why God blesses us primarily. It's not. He said in this passage he wants to give the Israelites a cleanness, a cleanliness. He wants to cleanse them. He wants to give them a new spirit. He wants to give them a new heart. Those are amazing promises we find in Ezekiel chapter 36 that God wants to bless his people with some really powerful things. But like I said before, it's not because we were irresistibly lovable. Because we find this all over scripture, this thread and theme, that we're sinners. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, it says, We were dead in the sins and transgressions in which we once walked. Dead. In our sins, we were so sinful, in God's eyes, we were spiritually dead. Romans 3.23 says this. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the standard is God's glory, and what did we all do? We sinned, and we felt short of it. That's why we were created, that's why we were given this life, and we all fell short of God's glory. Romans 5, verse 8 says that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us while we were sinners. Because we were so irresistibly lovable? No. Jesus died because unless he died, we were all going to spend an eternity apart from God. These passages tell us that's something that's hard to hear. We were putrid in God's eyes. God looked down upon us. He didn't see it irresistibly lovable people that he couldn't resist loving them. No. He saw quite the opposite. We had made quite a mess of ourselves. We had rebelled against his commandments. We had lived obstinately. We had lived selfishly. We had lived cruelly. And God does love us deeply, but his good treatment that we find in Scripture towards us is not primarily about us. It's not. It's about the magnification of God's great name. That's why he says in Ezekiel 36, I'm not doing this for your sake, people. Why would God say that? Why would God give us all these blessings and then also at the same time tell us, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my great name. See, when sinners are made good, something happens. 
The sinner doesn't get the praise, does he? The Savior gets the praise. When sinners are made clean and good and healthy once again, the sinner doesn't pat himself on the back. What does the sinner do? He returns glory to the one who did it. That's why God does it. It's for his own glory namesake. And Jesus receives the glory when we're made clean. And God gets the glory because Jesus, Jesus and Scripture tell us that it was God's plan to send Jesus to this earth. So who gets the glory for our salvation? Do I get it? No, I don't get it. You don't get it. God should get it and Jesus should get it. Sinners are conduits to God's glory. I hope we understand that. We are conduits to God's glory. That's why we receive such amazing blessings from God. Salvation belongs to our God. For the magnification of his great name, we are saved because God loves his own glory. I'm going to say that again. We are saved because God loves his own glory. That's a deep thought. I want you to think about that for a moment. That we're saved because God loves his own glory. And perhaps you're sitting there wanting to recoil at that, going, oh, that sounds weird. That sounds selfish. God wants his own glory? God wants his own name to be great? How is that loving? How is that humble? I don't know if you're thinking that. I've had those thoughts in my mind from time to time. And if you're thinking that, you're not alone. You're not alone. I want to read you a quote from one Brad Pitt, a famous movie actor. You guys know who Brad Pitt is. He said this once. He said, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. He says, it seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. He's a very talented actor. But when I read that, and I've read it a few times now, it saddens me. It saddens me. Because Brad Pitt's perspective, unfortunately, represents a lot of our perspectives about God. And I want you to see the, uh, the fallacy of this logic. That because I can't understand God's ways in my futile, broken mind, God must not exist. Because I have trouble understanding why God operates the way he does, he must not exist. That's the logic. Because God seems to be about something different than what I think God should be about, there is no God. Isn't that sad? That God is the problem. We're not the problem. We're the sinners and the broken ones, but God must be the one with the problem. But this is, ironically, actually where we unlock the greatness of God in a two-fold understanding. You see, when we're thinking correctly, and I hope we can today, we actually want God to be about his own name and glory. We do, and that's the journey we're going to take today. My kids, if you have children, you'll understand this. My kids think that I should use all of our money to buy them things. Uh, to give them whatever they want, candy, toys. Every single time uh, we go to the store, it should be about getting them something. They love Target, right? Because Target means dad's going to get me a toy. And we have to explain to them that's not really what this trip is about. Sometimes we do, but we're just going to get needs for the household. But my kids think actually that our paycheck and our money exists to buy them things. But you know what's interesting about kids? They are glad that we pay our rent. They're glad that we buy them food. They're glad that we buy them clothing. They just don't know it. If we didn't have a house, if we didn't have clothing, if we didn't have food to give them, that would affect them greatly, wouldn't it? But kids don't have that perspective. Kids just go, it's about giving me toys and candy and things that I want. That's why mom and dad exist. And mom and dad have higher ways and higher things to think about than children do. 
Before we look at why we want God to be about, be about his own glory primarily, I want to consider the options. I want to consider a few options that God could be about. Because maybe Brad Pitt thinks God should be about one of these. Here's a couple options God could be about, okay? Maybe God should be about mankind. Maybe God should exist for mankind. Maybe he should exist to make us happy and blessed. Maybe that's why God should exist. To make me happy. To make me blessed. To make me prosperous. A lot of us get frustrated at God because we think that's what he should be about. God, I'm not as happy as I want to be. I'm not as rich. I'm not as comfortable. I'm not as successful as I think I should be. God, what's going wrong in our relationship that you're not blessing me like you should? I think a lot of us get frustrated because we have this misconception that God doesn't exist for us. Should God exist about mankind? Should that's what God's pure existence be about? That's one option. Here's another option, the state of the universe. God could exist for the healthy state of the universe. He could be green. He could care about the environment and clean air and global warming. God could care primarily about the earth and the state of the earth. That's an option, right? For God to care about earth. I mean, that's why a lot of people think that's the most honorable pursuit we have on this earth, is to care about the earth. Maybe that's what God should care about. That's an option. Here's another one. Angels and heavenly beings. I mean, you'd say they're better than humans, right? So maybe God could go a little higher than mankind and care mostly about angels and heavenly beings and their welfare. Because most of them, there's a lot of them in heaven that still are holy, that haven't fallen from heaven. So maybe God should care primarily about them. But the other option, the big one, is God's name and glory. God's name and glory is the other option. Maybe God should exist for that. What I want to do is I want to consider a few questions to hopefully arrive at the proper answer. I want you to take a little quiz with me today, okay? Shout your answers out. That's all I'm looking for. I want to consider a few options today. I want you to answer these questions honestly by looking at these four options, okay? We have a multiple choice here today. Four options for every question. Don't pass. Don't make up another option. Let's consider, consider a few questions to arrive at the best answer out of those four, okay? Which of those is eternal? Because God is eternal. God is an eternal being. Which one of those is eternal? Anyone want to guess? Is it mankind, the state of the universe, angels, and heavenly beings, or God's name and glory? God's name and glory. Okay, 100%. Good job, guys. It's going to be an easy quiz. Uh, number two, which of these is neither sinful, cursed, or fallen? God's name and glory. Mankind is sinned, is sinful. The earth is cursed. And angels, at least some of them, are fallen, correct? God's name and glory is none of those. Number three, which of these is the highest and the best? Now, that one takes a little bit more thought. Which one is the highest and the best? Mankind, the state of the universe, angels, or God's name and glory? Which one's highest? Okay, good. You guys are doing well. You guys have a high IQ. Which of these is almighty? Which of these is all wise? Which of these is sovereignly in control of everything? You seeing a pattern here? Which of these is incorruptible? Which of these has no possibility for corruption? God's name and glory. Which of these never changes? Which of these never came into existence? And which of these have always been? God's name and glory. Which of these will never pass away? It says in scripture, our life is like a vapor. 
You ever see your breath on a cold morning and then it dissipates? That's what scripture says our life is like. Here for a moment and then gone. We just, we just learned that recently, unfortunately. It also says in scripture that earth is going to be rolled up like a scroll in Revelation. Whatever we know, whatever we see, one day is going to be tossed away because it's disposable in God's eyes because of its, because of its nature of being sin-cursed. Uh, which of these will make the devil tremble with fear? Let's work through these a little bit. Does mankind make the devil tremble? You think you scare the devil? No, you don't. <laughs> the state of the universe, that one doesn't even make sense. The devil kind of owns the world right now. Uh, number three, angels and heavenly beings. Those are kind of his peers. Do you think that makes the devil tremble? No. But there is one in scripture that does make the devil tremble, and it's number four, God's name and glory. He wants no part of that. He wants no part of being around Jesus or God's glory. That one makes him tremble. How about this one? Which of these has a throne in heaven? God's name and glory. And which of these created and sustains the other three? Do you notice something there? Do you notice how one far surpasses the other? You get the point, right? You get the point how there's other options God could be about, but there's one that far surpasses them all. The one true almighty God must be about the highest and the best things. So shouldn't the highest being care about the highest possible pursuit? Whatever is the highest and the best is what God should primarily be about. Humans do this, right? Humans strive to be the best in our field. Whatever it is you practice, you strive to be the best at that. You try to climb the ladder. No one ever wants to go down the ladder. You want to climb the ladder. You want to go up. You want to be the best in your field. A God that strives for something less than the greatest thing is not a very smart God. He's not a very holy God. You could say that a God that doesn't strive for the best is even less driven than mankind. Even less motivated than mankind. And hopefully you're like me today if you're wrapping your mind around this. I want my God to be about the absolute best things. I want him to be about the highest things. Here's a silly illustration. Aren't you glad our president of the United States has important meetings in his schedule instead of binge-watching Netflix all the time, like the rest of us? <laughs> Aren't you glad that he sits down and talks about world peace and missiles and North Korea and things that matter? Aren't you glad he has meetings like that It doesn't just sit down and binge-watch? Right? You're happy that the president cares about higher things than the normal American. Don't you think you want your God that way? Don't you think you want your God to think about the highest and best things? We want God to be higher and greater than us. If God isn't better and higher than us, then he certainly can't be creator of all. He certainly can't really do much for us if he's not the best and the greatest being. We certainly have no business trusting him with our lives, let alone our eternal souls. But God is higher. God is better than the best of us, so much more than we can comprehend. I read this passage recently from Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, but God says this, My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So far as heaven is above the earth, are my thoughts and ways higher than yours. I love that passage. Because that proves to us that God's ways and thoughts are well beyond what we consider the best. So if you're confused about why God would be about what he is, do you think the problem is us? Do you think the problem is God? The problem is us. 
We're the ones with broken minds. We're the ones with sinful hearts. God does strive after things that are so far above the things that we consider important, like parents do with children. My children don't understand the things that we do with the money and the budget and stuff like that, but they're thankful they have those things, even though they don't understand them. And my, my children could look at me the same way Brad Pitt looks at God and says, ah, he's not a very good dad. He doesn't buy me every single toy, every piece of candy I ever want. Therefore, he's a bad dad. No, that's poor logic. I have higher things to care about. And it's a good thing that our God has higher ways because it means he has almighty power. It means he has wisdom. It means he has love. It means that he is our creator. It means that he can help us. It means that he can even save us from our sins. Aren't you thankful for that? Our God is great. Our God is magnificent. Our God is holy, unlike any other. The scriptures say he is holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In case you didn't get the point from the first holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Scripture speaks confidently that there is nothing higher than the glory of God's name. The magnification of God's name is the highest possible pursuit anyone can strive for, including God himself. It's not selfish or egotistical for God to pursue his own glory and name. It's the perfect characteristic of being divine. Is it egotistical for doctors to try to be the best doctor in their field? Would you say that's egotistical? Why do you want to be a great doctor? Why do you want to be such a good doctor? Oh, you're so egotistical. No, I help people. That's why I want to be a great doctor. What about your pastor? If your pastor strives to know the most truth, is that egotistical? Hopefully not. Hopefully it's because I serve my people with truth. It's not egotistical and selfish for God to care about the highest and greatest things. That's a characteristic of being divine. God's pursuit of his own glory is precisely what allows God to love sinners. And there's a depth that we're hopefully going to explore here for a moment. Because that's the second reason we want God to be about his own name and glory. Because, here's the first one, God striving after his glory means he created us, he can help us, and he can save us. Because he's big, and he's great, and he's almighty, and he's full of wisdom. And the second reason we want God to be about his own glory is that God receiving glory by redeeming sinners is the primary reason that caused him to love us to such a degree that he sent his son for us. That's why. It is the foundation for his wonderful love towards us. God's glory is the foundation for his love towards sinners. See, according to scripture, we had made ourselves quite ugly in God's eyes by following our sins. God says that our righteous deeds were like filthy rags. Our righteous deeds, our best attempt at being righteous, brought before God, looks like filthy rags. Wow. But that's what scripture teaches us. Who is the worst sort of person you can imagine? Maybe a rapist. Maybe a child molester. Maybe a person that abuses the elderly and the disabled. There's a lot of bad people in this world, right? But whatever person you can imagine is still far from how putrid and filthy we were before the eyes of the holy God. Each of us, myself included, was steeped in sinfulness. It wasn't like, whoops, we actually fell into mud and, and now we look gross. No, no. We actually purposefully chased perverted things. Things that God says are detestable. Things that God says are an abomination before his eyes. We chased them, we wanted them, and we did them. 
We all chose to live lives that actively hurt our God and his name. The thing that God cares most about. But God found a way to love us practically because he does love us tremendously. God found a way to love us practically while accomplishing his greatest act of glory. God would send Jesus to this earth to save us while we were in our sins and cleanse us and heal us and make us right and good once again so that all of creation would sing God's praises for all eternity. Do you notice that? And that's the second reason we want God to be about his own glory. It's the foundation for his love, his wonderful love towards us as sinners. It's the reason he loves us. The first reason is because he created us, or excuse me, because he loves his glory, it means he's our creator, he can help us, and he can save us. But the second reason is because it's the foundation of his love for us. God is so committed to glorifying his name that he delights in helping sinners and being merciful towards us. That's how committed he is to his own glory. He delights in giving me mercy. He delights in giving me salvation. If God is primarily motivated by his own glory, then it changes the very nature for how we see him, how we see us, and how we see our time upon this earth. It changes everything. If we will see this one thing properly, we will see everything clearly. That it's all about God's glory. I'll see God properly, I'll see myself properly, and I'll see the time on this earth properly. See, if God is the servant of man then we have every right to complain and murmur when things don't go our way. Because God should be the servant of man. If God is the servant of man, then it makes sense why we question him when our lives aren't perfectly ideal. If God is the servant of man, then of course nothing is wrong with abandoning God when he doesn't line up with how he, we think he should act toward us. If God is the servant of man, then why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Why was King David's life threatened so many times? Why was Joseph beaten and sold into slavery by his own brothers? Why did the Apostle Paul get stoned and dragged through the streets? If God is the servant of man, none of that makes any sense. But God is all about something much, much greater and much, much higher. And it's not the American dream. It's not about man's happiness upon the earth. God is concerned with his own glory and that glory allowed him to create us and redeem us and love us steadfastly and faithfully for all of eternity. But that also means this. We are his servants. I am God's servant, not the other way around. God gave me salvation. God gave me hope. God gave me security eternally. That means I am God's servant. Therefore, I don't complain. I don't murmur. I don't question God. I certainly don't abandon God, no matter how my life goes. And suddenly, the lives of Daniel, David, Joseph, the Apostle Paul, and countless others make sense. They make sense. Because their lives were about something greater than their happiness. Their lives were about the glory of God. God's purpose to glorify himself causes him to place us in a bunch of situations where there's no rescue, there's no escape, there's no getting out. There's no salvation unless God himself comes to our rescue. Why? Because he would be glorified by that. He puts us in situations where there's no salvation. There's no getting out. There's no rescue unless we look to God. 
We are saved, we are loved, and he is glorified. That's difficult, isn't it? That's a difficult life. The Christianity that we've been placed on, this path we've been placed on, is a difficult path. But without question, we are supposed to be aiming at the highest and best and greatest thing imaginable, just like our God is, which is the glory of God. This is the very reason for our existence and God's love towards us. This is why we teach this today. It's the proper perspective we need for 2020. And really good things, like the glory of God, are supposed to be costly to attain. I want you to consider that the better the thing is, the costlier it is, correct? I mean, think about it. Here's the difference between trying to get a high school degree between getting a doctorate. A high school degree doesn't take a lot of work. Trust me, I got one. Uh, a doctorate, though, that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of money. That takes a lot of stress. Because it's higher, it's greater, it's better. The costlier it is. Because the greater it is. Well, there's nothing higher than the glory of God. That's why Christianity is difficult. That's why it's costly. We're striving for the greatest, greatest thing imaginable. To glorify our God with our lives. We should linger here so much longer, but we don't have the time. We need to try to apply this today. Because what's the point? God cares about his own glory and name more than anything. Okay, so what? Great, thanks for the doctrinal lesson. What's the point? See, this is essential for us to remember because knowing it calibrates our minds and, and hearts properly to the truth and it gives us the perspective we're looking for. And it also does something unique. It allows us to live abundantly in the midst of hardships. It allows us to live abundantly in the midst of hardships. Will, will there be hardships in 2020? I hate to depress you today, but probably. There's probably going to be hardships in 2020. That's a Debbie Downer thing to say, but it's honest. 2020 is probably going to have its own share and version of hardships. And we need this perspective for 2020. We need it. We need something to help us rise above the hardships of life. Because often, when hardships come, they define us. How was your week? Well, not very good. I was sick. My week was defined by my sickness or my backache or people speaking mean against me. That's, that's what my week was like. It defined me. But there's a way in Scripture to rise above the hardships, and it's by looking to the glory of God. I want us to circle back to how we began. Does God want us to live an abundant 2020? Yes, he does. God wants us to live an abundant 2020. But maybe not in the way we think. Maybe not according to the American dream. God has higher things that he wants for our lives. God wants us to sync up with his desires and his will. Why? Because it's better. It's better than my will. It's better than my desires. God wants us to go higher than that. My will and my desires are not the greatest thing in the universe. God's will and God's desires are. That's how I live abundantly. God wants his name to be magnified in our lives. Why? Because my name doesn't mean much. But his name means everything. God wants us to go higher and greater. He wants his glory accomplished in our lives because my glory doesn't linger. My glory doesn't change people's lives. God's glory changes people's lives. God wants his commandments to be our very meat and drink because his commandments are great. His commandments are what please him. His commandments are what glorify him and his son. That is the abundant life. That is the abundant life. When we strive for something that America can't give us, only God can. The glory of God, our eternal welfare, 
our peace and security for all of eternity. In fact, those four things we just described, that's heaven. That's exactly what heaven is. It's a place where we sync up with God's will and desires. It's a place where God's name is magnified. It's a place where God's glory is accomplished. And it's a place where God's commandments are completely abided by for all of eternity. That's heaven. Our Disneyland version of heaven that we go and get everything we want and we have these great mansions and we just do whatever we want in heaven, that's not really biblical. I can't say there's none of those things in heaven. There probably are wonderful things. But heaven is purely defined by glorifying our great God. Is that what you want? Let's try to look at, from God's perspective, at accomplishing that goal in our lives. Would it be best to make our lives safe, rich, comfortable at all times? Is that the best course to accomplishing God's glory? Is it? I mean, think about your life. If you have zero hardships, is that the best course to you glorifying God? If so, then no hardship should come to us. If that is the best course to me glorifying God and you glorifying God, hardships don't make any sense. God, if you want your own glory, and the best way to get there is by making me comfortable, why are there any hardships whatsoever? But obviously we know God has a process of making something we're not yet. Perfectly holy beings. If you're anything like me, when I'm safe, when I'm rich, when I'm comfortable for a long stretch of time, I do something shameful. I forget about God. I forget about Him. I'm rich, I'm comfortable, I'm safe. I got my own agenda. I'm doing my own thing, and I forget about the one who gives me everything. So, sadly, God has to bring me through affliction and pain and sorrow according to his own measure so that I do something. I look up to God for help. God, I need help. God, my back hurts. God, this is stressful. This is hard. God, that losing Jeannie Desmond is not easy. God, I need your help. God, I need you. God, help me. And by doing so, I, I glorify God and I ask for his glory in my life. But I want to be very clear today. God is never choosing his own glory at the expense of hurting us. Never. Never. I'll say it again. Never. It is never God choosing to magnify his name by stomping us down. Never. What's so amazing is that God's glory and his love for us are a team. They're two sides of the same coin. God's glory and his love for us are a perfect team. But does God glorify himself in my life? Yes. Well, then he must not love me. No, that's not correct. Well, does God love me all the time? Yes. Well, then he must not glorify his name. Wrong. He does both. Every time he loves me, he glorifies himself. Every time he glorifies himself in my life, he loves me. To accomplish God's glory, he needs, us to, he needs to shape us into holy beings who want the same thing he wants and do the same things that he does. And in that way, he prepares us for heaven. Heaven is a place where God's glory and his love for his people perfectly have a relationship together with no hardships. With no hardships. See, on earth there are hardships because this is a sin-cursed world we live on. And we are sinful beings being made into holy beings. And unfortunately, hardships are a necessary purifying fire that make us more like Jesus, aren't they? Think about the hardships in 2019. The goal of those hardships was not just to make your life difficult. It was to make you like Jesus. They're necessary. They're a purifying fire, it says in 2 Peter. 
A perfect example, we got to move quickly here, but a perfect example of this is what I mentioned before with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter 3. We don't have the time to read that passage, but sometime, even today, read Daniel chapter 3. See, evil King Nebuchadnezzar came up with a wonderful plan. I'm going to make this large golden statue. I'm going to wheel it out to all the people that are under my reign, and I'm going to make them bow down to the golden statue and give me glory. And he said, so when the music plays, I want everybody to bow down and give me glory. And everybody did, except three guys. They stood there, and they didn't glorify King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Why? Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sought the glory of God alone. They knew that they existed for the glory of God and that God's glory and his love for them was a perfect team. So what did King Nebuchadnezzar do? He threatened these three guys with a fiery furnace. In fact, if you know the story, he was so agitated by their answer because they basically said, we're not going to bow down to your statue, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, okay, make the furnace seven times hotter. And it was so hot that the people that were making it hotter died. That's how hot it was. And so he made this furnace very hot and trying to threaten these three guys into saying, you better bow down or I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Did they bow down? No. They stood there. As the music played and everyone else bowed down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood there. At the threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace, well, this made King Nebuchadnezzar enraged. And so what did he do? He took those guys up and threw them into the fiery furnace. Okay, I told you what was going to happen. You don't bow down to my statue. I throw you into the fiery furnace. And what happened? He looks into the fiery furnace and remembers he threw three guys into the furnace, but there's four guys in there. and One looked like the son of man. <laughs> so he brings Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego out. They're not even one of their eyebrows are singed. And he's amazed. He's amazed. And he says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. I don't know if that would happen 100% of the time with evil kings, but it happened that day. King Nebuchadnezzar saw that the one true God is the one who should be glorified. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't perish in the flames. It's possible they could have, but you know what happened? God's glory and his love for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came together. God was glorified, and they were protected. Now, what would have been easy to protect them is bow down, right? If you want to be protected, guys, bow down. Even if you don't want to, just bow down and save your own life. No. King Nebuchadnezzar cannot protect me. The God of the universe can protect me. He's the one I glorify. That's an amazing story, isn't it? How did those guys do that? A fiery furnace is standing before them. And we use this to say, what is 2020 going to be like? I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. But there's going to be seasons of blessings and there's going to be seasons of hardships. And both of them give us a divine opportunity to return glory to the Lord. For blessings, we should thank God for his gifts on the earth. And for hardships, we should praise him for making us like Jesus. We need to remember that hardship is not the absence of God's love or that God isn't paying attention to us. On the contrary, everything that we go through is a divine opportunity to do the very thing we were created to do, which is glorify our God. It's important to remember that we don't make the name of God great, do we? We don't make his name great. I represent him for what he actually is. 
In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul tells us this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's the highest and best and greatest thing. If we want to glorify God's name, we need to do one thing. If you want to glorify God's name, you need to do one thing. Look to Jesus. Who glorified God more than anyone? Jesus. Who sought God's glory more than his own? Jesus. Who lived through a lot, a lot of hardships for the sake of God's glory? Jesus. If you want to glorify God and you want to live life that matters for the rest of eternity, look to Jesus. See, God promised to fill our bank accounts eternally. He's going to fill our bank accounts. Our our bank accounts, which is a metaphor, but our bank accounts eternally are filled according to God's riches, and they're never going to be emptied. Our bank accounts are eternally filled. And then he asks us for something. He says, now I want you to give me your earthly bank account. I'm going to fill your heavenly bank account, but now your earthly account, whatever's in it, is mine. Live it for me, use it for me, use it for my people, use it for my glory. And Jesus emptied both. Jesus emptied his earthly bank account. He emptied his heavenly bank account. And now Jesus says to his people, empty your earthly bank account and use it for God. Use it for God's glory. Use it for God's people. And Jesus has the key to eternal joy and eternal security. And that key is glorifying God. We can either reject God's glory and strive for our own happiness in 2020, strive for the welfare of planet Earth, or we can get on board this new year and be convinced that whether comfort or hardship, we have a unique and quickly passing opportunity to strive for the best, highest, greatest thing imaginable, which is God's glory. Won't you make Jesus' life and teachings your greatest resolution this year, and won't you let God's glory be seen over all your life? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this message. It's fast. It's a lot to process. But Father, thank you for your for your namesake, for your glory that you've taught us today that matters in every aspect of our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you that you care about the greatest and best things and that by caring about your own glory, it means we get the most, the deepest, the greatest love from you. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving sinners. Thank you for teaching us this. Help us to have a new perspective in 2020, to live for your glory because of all that you've done and all that you are. And I thank you for Wyoming Valley Church, a church that loves truth. And I pray that we'd all walk in this perspective today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to thank everyone for being here today. Hope you have a great new year. I hope to